If you would, go in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And again, if you are visiting with us, welcome. We're so grateful to have you with us. And uh, we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. And we find ourselves this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we are going to look at verses 25 through 35. And the title of my sermon this morning is Singleness a gift from God. And the key words for our worshipers in training are single, gift, and glory. And as I was reflecting on this text, I thought about some of the great men and women throughout the church's history who were single, unmarried. Uh, some of them you will recognize, maybe some of them... You won't, but I hope will eventually. Uh, I think of uh, St. Francis of Assisi, Thomas Aquinas, Joan of Arc, Tom, Thomas Akempis, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, many of you may have heard of the missionary Amy Carmichael, never married. A woman, Helen Rosevere, still living today. I actually met her in 2007. Felicia reads her books and loves them very much. Uh, Helen was a doctor, missionary in the Congo, and uh, started several hospitals and has a wonderful story to tell. Never married. The German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed on my birthday during the uh, World War II. Um, C.S. Lewis was a bachelor most of his life. He was married at the age of 57, and then four years later, his wife died and remained a widower after that. And still living today as well, British theologian John Stott, who is now 89 years old, has never been married. And then, of course, we know the Apostle Paul and our Lord Jesus Christ, neither of whom are, were married. So the thing that all of these have in common is what we will be talking about today. And that is a gift that God gives certain individuals for singleness. We saw several weeks ago as we looked at verses 8 and 9 that this is a call to holiness. This is a call to purity as a gift. And I argue that this gift of singleness is a rare thing and is something that is determined for a specific Purpose. So, as a reminder, look at verse 8 in chapter 7. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So, we're finalizing chapter 7 today and... We're looking at this idea of singleness. And, and just so you remember sort of the breakdown that we walked through in chapter 7, verses 2 through 7 were instruction that Paul gave to those who were married, Christians who were married to one another. Verses 8 and 9, he had instruction for those who were either separated from their spouse or, or who were widows because their spouse had died. Verses 10 and 11 were those who were contemplating being separated from their spouse. Verses 12 through 16 was instruction to those who were married to unbelievers. 
And 17 through 24, which we looked at last week, is to Christians who were seeking a better situation, whether it be in their relationships or their job or their circumstances of everyday life. And then today we will look at 25 through 35 and his instruction to those who are betrothed, or another word that your text may say is to the virgins and as Paul understood it, for one to be unmarried and to one be a virgin were synonymous. They were synonymous terms which we cannot take for granted today. And then the end of the chapter we covered when we looked at uh, previous verses. So I'm going to set these verses up for you, break them down, give a few comments and applications, and then we'll go to lunch. So let me give you a few uh, introductory thoughts and why I look at this text and see that it is incredibly, incredibly relevant for us today. At the turn of the century in 1900, 92% of new brides being married were virgins. 92%. 9 out of 10. 65 years later, 1965, that number dropped to 43%. 1980, that number was at 14%. And now we are on the absolute opposite side of the spectrum. From 1900 to 2000, now only 9% of new brides being married are virgins. 41% of women live with a man prior to marriage, and they're remaining single longer, but they are engaging in sexual immorality sooner. So if we look at this and ask, is today's text relevant to us? The answer is absolutely. This is incredibly relevant to us. And this whole idea of singleness and marriage and what our singleness is about is highly emotional for some people. And we need to take a look at what the Scriptures say about this. We know from Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that the Lord determined in creation that it is not good for a man to be alone. And so He created woman, brought them together, and said that a man shall leave his father and his mother shall hold fast to a wife, and the two will become one flesh. God determined it is not good for a man to be alone. Why? (laughs) Well, let's be honest. Seriously. Guys, think about living your whole life alone and how, uh, how that might turn out. Uh, I had enough time in college and in the army to know how most guys live while they are alone. I understand it is not good for a man to be alone for many, many reasons. And we see all throughout the Bible that marriage is celebrated. Marriage is the norm. Marriage is what God calls men and women to. So Paul says in verse 9, which we just read, if one who is unmarried or one who is a widow cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It is better for them to be married than to be aflame with passion. So he's talking to dudes here. You can't remain pure. You can't keep yourself pure, then know your Bible, fight sin, 
Be spiritually mature, ready to lead a family, get a job, stop playing video games, be a man and not a boy, give up your Star Wars pajamas with footies in them, grow up, be a man, and get married. And at stake here is this idea of godliness, spiritual maturity. A man with a desire to lead his home. Pursuing a woman to be his wife that he could lead, have a family with, for the glory of God. So this requires a lot on the part of a man in the way of spiritual maturity and I would say probably requires regular bathing and occasional breath mints as well. All throughout the Bible, though, we see that marriage is normative. It is the normal thing. Even today, 91% of people eventually marry. 86% of singles want to marry. And Paul himself writes in several several places throughout the Bible on marriage. In Ephesians 5 especially, he gives us this great and beautiful picture of what marriage is. What it represents in terms of Christ's relationship to the church. But now he's addressing this area of singleness. And some people read this and they assume by it that Paul is looking down on marriage, that he has a low view of marriage, or that uh, to be single is to be something that is more holy than to be married. This is how the Roman Catholic Church has interpreted this, and is in grievous error because of it. And we see the sins of the clergy of the Catholic Church come out because they are aflame with passion and yet are restricted from doing what the Bible calls them to do, which is to marry. And so it is not the case that Paul is saying singleness is more holy. This is not the case. And we need to see all of this in proper context. Why was Paul calling certain people to singleness? In addition to this, we need to take into context what Jesus said in Matthew 19 after He presented to the disciples how permanent marriage is. The disciples said to Him, well, if such is the case of a man with his wife, then it is better not to marry at all. And Jesus' response was, well, not everyone can receive that saying. Not everyone can not be married but only those to whom it is given. So, Jesus here is presenting singleness then as a gift from God. It's not for everyone. It is a gift that is given. So, let's see what Paul says about it, beginning in verse 25. Now, concerning the betrothed, or the virgin, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one whom by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. 
From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit. Not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Okay, so let's look at these verses. I'm not going to go in order today, uh, but we're going to look at all of them a little bit out of order. Verse 25, though, I think we need to address this up front. Again, Paul says, now concerning The betrothed. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Concerning, the word he's using here, now concerning the betrothed, he is writing in response to a question that the Corinthians have. Remember at the beginning of chapter 7, he said, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And so this is one of the matters of which they wrote. What is to go on with those who are virgins? In our midst. So he's answering their question. And again, this idea of betrothed is also the word virgin or one who is unmarried. These two things synonymous to Paul. To be a virgin and to be unmarried were synonymous. And he says in there, this is my judgment. I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy because I have no command from the Lord. What does he mean? As he said in a previous passage, in essence, the Lord did not speak on this specifically. We don't have a specific word from the Lord Jesus on this. So I as one who the Lord by His mercy has made worthy of trust will establish a principle, will establish a set of ideals to walk in here for you. So this is not mere conjecture. Remember, this is from the Apostle Paul who's been granted authority from the Lord. And it's in the Word, and we know from 1 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And so we know this is not simply the opinion of Paul of which we can take or leave. It is something that he is given with apostolic authority. Now, before we dig too deep into what he's saying about singleness, I think we need to see this passage in the right context to understand why he writes what he does about singleness. I've got three things I want to point out about the context. The first I get from verse 26, where he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. What is this present distress that he is speaking of? There's many ideas about what this might be. I think the most compelling is this, that during the time that Paul was writing to the Corinthians, there was a cultural crisis. There was 
one of two things going on, maybe both of them at the same time. When Paul was writing this letter was about the time of the beginning of Roman persecution of Christians under King Nero. It was only approximately 15 years later after the writing of this letter that Jerusalem fell completely by the hand of Nero. So an example of the persecution that they were enduring. Nero was known to take Christians alive and to take the carcass of an animal and to put the Christian in the carcass, to wrap them in it, to sew it shut, and to throw them into a, uh, into a stadium where they let lions loose to tear them from limb to limb as the Roman people sat and watched. It was sport. This was the persecution they were enduring. We know uh, from church history, and we know from the Scriptures, as he's mentioned, uh, that Erastus was one of the first Christian martyrs. He was from Corinth. So as Paul is writing this, we know in Corinth there's extreme persecution going on within the church. (laughs) Additionally, we know prophesied in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, that there was to be a great famine. And so it could very well have been that during this time that there was a lot of starvation, there were riots, great poverty, social upheaval, and of course death because of starvation and famine. So uh, I would say that being fed to lions in an animal carcass is a bit of distress, Um, a little more than a flesh wound. And so they're enduring some serious persecution. Serious famine, perhaps, at the same time. These Corinthian Christians were in imminent danger. Their lives, their way of life was constantly in imminent danger. Well, Why didn't Paul explain what he meant by this current distress? Well, obviously the Corinthians already knew. They knew the stress. They knew all that was going on around them. We saw no need to explain that. So the context we have to keep in mind as we read through this is a sort of war zone. These people are in the midst of extreme persecution, perhaps famine at the same time. And so Paul says, in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. The second thing of context that we need to consider in this passage is in verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. So what does Paul mean by that? Does he mean, like the Apostle James, that life is a vapor or life is a mist? We appear on this earth only for a little time and then we are gone. Is that what he means by that? Maybe. Uh, John Calvin said that he's speaking of an impending approach of death. That they understood time was short because they knew that they were approaching death very quickly. Maybe, I'm not going to question John Calvin, but it doesn't seem to fit the context. Some believe that Paul was speaking of the imminent return of Christ. That they knew that Christ was to return. And so he said, our time is short. Christ will be returning soon. 
I think most fitting as we consider all of this is this idea that because our time is short, because life is a vapor, because life is a mist, as James says, it's going to influence our decisions when we understand that. We will be influenced by this understanding that I'm only here for a short time. And as I realize that, and as I contemplate that, that is going to work itself out in my decisions of everyday life. I realize my short lifespan. So that time is going to factor into all of my decisions. Time factors in all of our decisions right now, right? How often during the day do we ask questions about, well, what time? What time do I need to be there? What time is it now? How long is whatever going to last? We ask these questions of time constantly. And so as we take into consideration this idea that life is short, as Paul is putting it, the time has grown very short. An understanding of that will influence our every decision. So, the context then we understand is extreme persecution, present distress, the time is very short. And thirdly, verse 31 He says, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. The present form, the Greek word here is schema. So literally, the scheme of things. The scheme of things is passing away. The world, the worries, the stress, time, space, all of these things are passing away. So he's calling us away from temptations to hold on to holiness, to move away from the things of the world because they are passing away. John said time, space, all these temporal things are on their way out. There will be a new heaven and a new earth coming. The world is fading fast. And so in understanding of the passing World. So, what I gather from this is that we must, in all of this, in light of context here, we must introduce in all things an understanding of eternity in our thinking. If the way that we look at the world, the way that we look at our relationships and our circumstances, everything around us, if we look at them through the lenses of eternity, it will revolutionize our thinking. I do not believe it is possible to be too heavenly minded. But I do also believe that a right heavenly mind leads to earthly good. We must be very, very heavenly minded, focused on the eternal. So, in light of that, here's the full context. Corinth is or is about to undergo some cataclysmic alterations. Now, Paul is asking, in light of this distress, in light of this calamity, these violent circumstances you're in, if you can help it, is this the best and most wise time for you to marry? If you can wait, wouldn't it? be more advantageous for you to wait. 
probably talking specifically to men because the understanding was that men were initiating those relationships. So he's saying, in essence, consider leaving your wife and kids as widows and orphans. I think a good quote here, I don't know who said it, but it goes that children sweeten labors but make misfortunes more bitter. Consider that in the light of present distress, that you may be called on to give your life for the sake of Christ, leaving behind, if you are married, a widow and orphans. So Paul is saying, when the sea is raging, when all this is going on, the sea is raging, maybe it's not the best time to change ships. And we really struggle to understand this because we don't understand the dynamic of the distress of which Paul is speaking. Other parts of the world, this is a very real reality. I remember in 2005, I was in Mosul, Iraq, which is ancient Nineveh. The walls of the city of Nineveh are still standing. It's a remarkable sight. But right in the city... It's a small community of Turkish Christians. And I had the privilege of getting to meet them and spend some time with them and observe their worship. These people are under extreme persecution. They are Christian people, not Iraqis, they're from Turkey, in the middle of one of the most dangerous cities in the world, worshiping Jesus, surrounded by Muslims who are at civil war with one another. Daily, bombs are lobbed into their city. Things are planted in the road. Lives are lost constantly. Pastors taken from their churches, held captive for large sums of money. Children taken, used as slaves. This is their daily life. People in those circumstances, and they exist all throughout the world, understand what Paul is saying. In light of these circumstances, consider what is most wise here. So that is the context in which Paul writes. So now Paul has specific concerns for the Corinthians. I also see in here three concerns, all of them in verse 35. Let's read that together. I say this for your own benefit not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul's first concern is protection. Paul's not trying to burden the Corinthians here. Literally, he's saying he's not trying to put a halter around their neck. He's not trying to hold them back from their passions. Just remember, earlier on he said, if you cannot keep your passions at bay, then you need to go ahead and marry. He's not trying to put a halter around their neck and say, do not pursue marriage even though your passions are aflame. What he's trying to do, he's seeking to protect them from the troubles or the tribulation, literally, of marriage. Look at verse 28. He says, if you do marry... If you do marry, you have not sinned. 
And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles or tribulation. And I would spare you that. So here's what he's saying here. I don't want you in the midst of these current circumstances to have to endure troubles of marriage, of married life, if you are able to withstand being single. Look at verses 32 through 34. He explains this a little more. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So, very practically here, when you get married, things change, right? Guys, your time changes dramatically. No more video games and movie marathons. Um... The time you spend late at night smacking your buddy back and forth with a stick until one of you is bleeding or one of you gives up. I don't make this stuff up. I was in the army for four years. This is not happening with your wife. Your time changes. What you do with your time is very different. The way you spend your money changes. You're not buying big wheels for your truck and lift kits anymore or super turbo NOS mega speed fast fuel injection turbo whatever. I don't know anything about cars. That is not going down with spending money with your girl. I'm sorry. She's not going for it. Money, how you spend it, changes. Your hobbies now include things like gardening and cooking and diaper changing. They change. Things change. You can't live in an apartment on camping gear anymore. You can't live out of a backpack with a bedroll and a Coleman stove to make ramen noodle for every meal. Your life no longer fits in your car. And I'm not kidding. When I left for college, I had a, a Hyundai Accent hatchback, two-door. Everything I owned was in that bad boy. And I was proud of it. But there's someone else in your life now who has needs, who matters. You are called to serve and love her. Girls, same deal. Well, sort of. (laughs) Do you really want a dude living in your house with you all the time? You get to figure out what could possibly be going through the mind of this man who just put a transmission in the kitchen sink because it's too hot to work outside. You get to learn about sports statistics from decades past. You get to hear arguments for why Boston will beat L.A. in the NBA Finals and why the championship Duke basketball team is far superior to UNC. Things change. But in all seriousness, when you're married, your priorities shift. That's what Paul is getting at here. When you're single, you can and you should, and I'm going to argue that is the purpose of singleness, is that you should give undivided attention to God and to His work. So you're not worried about what time you need to be home 
Or if you're out late or up early, or if you're going to be two weeks out of town, or soccer games and piano recitals, front-facing car seats. Just bought one last week. These are the worldly things that Paul is speaking of in verses 33 and 34. And he's not writing here in a negative sense. He's talking about the reality of obligation. When we marry, things are different. We have other concerns. They're not bad to have these concerns. We must have these concerns to properly care for our spouse. But they're very different from the concerns of one who is single. So, remember, marriage and family is the norm. It is a gift from God. It is a beautiful thing. And I'll tell you, I could not be single right now. I could not. I love my wife. She's my best friend. The first one I want to talk to, the first one I want to enjoy my triumphs with, receive encouragement from in my failures, get feedback from in tough situations. And when I leave or she leaves, even in the middle of the day, I miss her. I could not be single. But Paul is saying, look, I'm not enslaving you to this idea that if you're ready to be married, that you have to be single. But in light of the present distress that we are surrounded by, in light of the shortness of time, the passing of the world, it is best for you to be single if at all possible. But marriage is okay and it's normal and you do not sin if you pursue it. That's the whole of his argument here. So that is his first concern, that he is protecting the Corinthians. His second concern is provision. He's saying, why am I concerned? I am concerned for your own good. I want to help you out here. I'm doing this because... I love you. He saw himself as a sort of father to the Corinthians. He wanted to, as a fatherly figure in their lives, to help them to understand how to live in community in the midst of their present distress. Third concern for them is that the singles would be men and women of devotion. That they would live in the right way. And I believe that the call to singleness is a call to proper, unhindered devotion to Jesus Christ. It is a special calling to usefulness in God's kingdom in a way that differs from your usefulness as one who is married. Single Christians should be completely sold out for Jesus Christ. What does that look like? I think there's four different ways that a person is single. One is a person who's not ready to be married. They're either young and not ready to provide and be prepared, or they're, uh, they're not at a place of spiritual maturity where they're ready to lead a family. So they may not be ready for marriage. Uh, the second reason a person may be single is that they are ready, but there is no potential person to marry. Girls, oftentimes, it's because he won't ask. And guys, it's because 
maybe your priorities are wrong or you just haven't met uh, someone who's paying you the time of day. Uh, Whatever it is, you may be ready to be married, uh, but there is no potential person to marry. That's another reason why you may be single. Third, it may be one who was previously married. So they're either a widow or separated from their spouse and may be single in that. And fourthly, and the thrust of where we're going to go now is this idea of the gift of singleness. That God specifically gifts some with singleness. It's a unique calling and it is a unique responsibility. It is not a call to be a 35-year-old teenager. The gift of singleness is a calling on single men and single women to use their time and their resources and their freedom from specific obligations in marriage. Singleness in general, no matter why you're single, to display by the Christ-exalting devotion of your singleness the truth about Christ and His kingdom that shines more clearly through singleness than in marriage. But all forms of singleness must be maximized for kingdom purposes to the glory of God. So that means you're free to take bigger risks. Be creative and courageous and do big and great things for Jesus, whether you're 8 or you're 88. If you're single, you can do those things in ways that I cannot Being single is not the time for commiserating and complaining about your circumstances because you're not married. It's not a time for casual dating. It's not a time to idolize the idea of a spouse. It's a time to fulfill a strategic role in God's kingdom. It's a call to live solely devoted to the things of Christ. Not being flirtatious, not leading others on, not breaking hearts, not getting physical, living sold out for Christ. And surely, as I named all those names of great Christians through our history, surely today God can raise up single stalwarts. Be zealous. Be imaginative. Pray hard. Ask God for specific ministry. Ask God to give you a heart for the nations that you would serve on mission and give your life for the sake of the Gospel. Don't waste your singleness no matter what the circumstances are that led you into singleness. Lastly, Paul exhorts all, married and unmarried, to have an eternal outlook on every aspect of life. We're going to look backwards at these to, find, to, to finally end up with relationships. Five things he calls us to have an eternal outlook on. First is in verse 31. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. So, culture. Paul is calling us to use the things of the world, but to not be engrossed with them. To enjoy them, 
and to use them for their purposes, but to not be engrossed in them. There's a huge difference between a Christian with an eternal perspective and those who are engrossed in the culture and enamored with everything of the culture. And so that means in culture, then, a Christian's presence changes everything. It changes parties. And if you invite Jesus, He brings the good wine. (laughs) It changes parties. It changes our hobbies. The things we do and the way we do them. It changes how we live as neighbors. Christians should be the most delightful people to live next door to. So we're not engrossed by the culture when we have an eternal perspective. We use the things of the world, we enjoy the things of the world, but we're not engrossed in them. The second thing he speaks of related to that is possessions at the end of verse 30. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Simply here, he's making this distinction between us having things and things having us. Do we own things and use things for their intended purposes in order that, through that, we see the gift and give glory to the giver? Or do these things have us? Are my attentions, my affections, every dollar saved up, every moment spent pursuing these things of the world because I'm so enamored by them and I so desire them that nothing else matters? Do things have us or do we have them? Third, he speaks of happiness. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. There's a significant joy here on this earth that does not compare to our eternal joy. Think of what in your life has brought you the most joy here on earth. Think of, I know some of you, it was a very long time ago. Think of your graduation. Your graduation was a time of joy and satisfaction and happiness and fulfillment. But compare that to the joy of graduating from this earth to heaven with Christ forever. There is no comparison. It simply points us to what is far greater. Think of your marriage. Men, as you stood and watched her walk down the aisle and say, I do. How great and full of joy. How satisfying. But what that was was to point us to the great wedding feast. The great banquet. When Christ, the bridegroom, receives His bride in fullness and perfection, and purity, and love, and wipes away every tear, and heals every pain. It is only a small glimpse of the joy and satisfaction that we as believers will experience in Christ through eternity. This is why worship is so important. 
Because I remember, I am reminded every time I worship that my source of joy is to come to God empty-handed. Because I do not have a gift to give God as though He can be repaid. Because God is not served by human hands. But that I come to Christ in worship that I might be filled with the joy of Christ and that would overflow in my love toward others. I must, I must worship to have an eternal outlook and understanding of true joy. Fourth, in verse 30, those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Death. We must have an eternal perspective on death. This is the very reason why Paul could say one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible, Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To die is gain. His hope is otherworldly. His hope is not of this world. It is of an eternal place, an eternal perspective. O death, where is your sting? That's why in Paul's life and in his perspective in all things, he could look at all that had happened to him and say, it's slight momentary affliction. No big deal. What are they going to do? Kill me? No problem. Death is gain. Lastly, verse 29, we must have an eternal perspective on our relationships. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. In other words, marriage, brethren, cannot be an excuse to reduce the believer's obligation to the Lord and His work. Your responsibilities in marriage and in family are no excuse for slackness in kingdom work. Now, we must take with that that we must not abuse our family in doing the Lord's work. And I confess to you that I need accountability in that. We must not abuse our families in doing the Lord's work. We have a great call and obligation to them. But our responsibilities of marriage and family are no excuse to be slack in our work for the kingdom. That's the predicament that Paul saw. And why he said, if you can avoid that, go for it. You will be very effective for the kingdom. But, remember in Luke 14.26, Jesus said this, and many are baffled by this statement, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, he's saying you cannot be a casual follower of Jesus. You either are or you are not. There is no middle ground. So how do we do this? How do we gain this eternal perspective to live either married or single, not engrossed in the world, focused on Christ? 
two things. First, that we must see all things as gifts from God pointing us to the giver. God gives us great gifts in this life, and we can rejoice in that. But if our rejoicing stops at the gift, we truly do not understand that the true gift is the giver. And secondly, and most importantly, is that we must, in order to gain eternal perspective, we must preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. We must remind ourselves that our righteousness is not our own. We must remind ourselves that I can never be a good enough husband. You can never be a good enough wife. You can never be a good enough single person in order to please God and allow that He would allow you and say, please come because I am so happy with what you have accomplished. You cannot good deed your way. You cannot good husband your way into heaven. Your righteousness is not your own. It is your very pursuit of your own righteousness that sent Christ to the cross to receive the wrath of God on our behalf that His righteousness could be given to us. And now we walk in the freedom of that righteousness. Not under sin. Not under the weight of the law. Not under guilt and condemnation. But in the freedom to walk with joy in Christ. So we are called to enjoy God, to enjoy the gifts of God, remembering always that the very enjoying that we do is a gift of God. Now, a small warning here, and then we'll be done. When I say that, I pray that there is conviction in that. When we talk about enjoying the things of the world and them not having us, but us having and using them, us not delighting in the gift, but the giver, I pray that should you be bound in that, there is conviction. But that conviction need not be a heavy weight of guilt. Christ has freed us from that. We can walk in the freedom of the righteousness that He gives. Because God is not loving the future you. He's not loving you with more accomplishments as a single person or as a married person. He's not loving you when you finally figure it out and get a little more serious about your spiritual disciplines. God loves you, Christian, right now. The same He did from the day He saved you unto eternity. And when you understand that, and when you preach that to yourself, and when that is internalized and worked out in your heart, you will only have a desire to live in a way that shows that this earth is not your home. And you will embrace the fullness of the Gospel that sets us free to live for the glory of God. Making much of Jesus who is our righteousness. And so whatever our gift is, whatever our calling is, be it to marriage, be it to singleness, whatever it is, may we look at those things with an eternal perspective. 
May we look at those things with the desire to make much of Christ in all aspects of our life. Because the time is short, brethren. The world is passing away very quickly. Let us use our time for His glory. And may we proclaim with the Apostle Paul that truly to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for Your Word. We're grateful for conviction. And I pray, God, that in that conviction that You help us to not carry a weight of guilt but that that conviction is used to stir new affections for You that our desires would be transformed and that we would move away from the temptations and the besetting sins in our lives and move closer to Christ who is our righteousness. Lord, I pray for all in here who are single in Christ. I pray, God, that You would give them a great longing and a great desire to use this time in their lives for Your glory. That they would be single-heartedly devoted to the work of the kingdom. Father, whatever the circumstances, whatever reason one is single, I pray that You help them to have this eternal perspective that pushes them forward in gospel-advancing kingdom work. Be that here, or be that in some form of missions, proclaiming the gospel where it has yet to be heard. Father, whatever it is, I pray that You give our single people a great longing and a great desire to make much of Jesus with their time and their resources and their ability to do so without other obligation. I pray, Father, for those of us who are married, I ask God that You would give us a great longing and desire to walk hand in hand with our spouse, showing the world through our marriage the great relationship between Christ and His church that we would be laborers together, co-laborers for the sake of the Gospel. Father, we would not use our marriages as excuses to be slack in kingdom work. That we would do kingdom work together. Understanding, Lord, that that is our greatest call, to live for Your glory. Father, we're thankful that You have given us Your Word. And by Your Word, we know of the righteousness that Christ has provided on our behalf. I pray, God, that we would preach that to ourselves daily. That You would help us to have eternal perspective. That You would help us to see all of life in light of this reality. That we will soon be here no longer. That we need Christ. That we must have Christ And that by no other means can man be saved. So God, I ask that You free us to live in a way that makes much of Jesus in all that we are, in all that we do, for Your glory, for our joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.